classrooms today look a lot different than they did even just 10 years ago. Smart boards have replaced chalkboards, and kids are more likely to use computers than spiral notebooks to take notes. Yet the importance of those in front of the classroom has remained constant. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Today we're sitting down with Lynette Guestafero, Executive Director of Teaching Matters. The organization works to make sure teachers in New York City public schools have the skills and tools they need to succeed in the classroom and drive school-wide improvement. Lynette, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So first of all, what's the mission of Teaching Matters? So Teaching Matters' mission is to develop and retain great teachers in urban schools, and our bottom line is that we want to see that every child has equitable access to great instruction. How long have you been doing that now? I have been doing this for 20 years. Wow, 20 years. Oh, yeah. How much has changed in the last 20 years when it comes to education in urban schools? I mean, in New York, quite a bit. I mean, we've been through, I I would definitely say that our schools are in a much better place than they were 20 years ago. There's been um, sort of systematic systemic changes around what quality schools look like. There's a real common definition of it now across the city. I don't what think is the definition? That, well, they're kind of a set of really key elements. Um, one is around leadership. Another one is that a school has a really clear sense of its curriculum, like what, you know, what kids are going to learn. Another one is around how you define great teaching. And there's been a lot of work done in the last few years to get really clear about that. The role of assessment. And, um, and I'm not just talking about the New York State tests, which, you know, we have those, but there's really much more important forms of assessment. Um, The role of parents, and um, increasingly this understanding that uh, great schools are about great teams of teachers who are working. Think about it like doctors um, doing medical rounds. Really strong schools have teachers that are engaged collaboratively to really diagnose kids' challenges and then develop solutions together. And so there's a real definition now of what good looks like for that. That being said, what are the biggest challenges today facing teachers in high-poverty schools? I think poverty is a huge, huge issue, and what poverty can do to families and also to the stressors on children. You know, it, we, we, we know a lot now about how stress affects the brain, and I think kids are coming with a host of challenges. We've also seen the homelessness and um, doubled-up housing rates skyrocket in the last few years. And so, you know, the we, we are in a cohort of schools and, and quite a few. Teaching Matters works with um, well over 100 schools across the city. Currently about 35, they're really targeting K-1-2, kindergarten, first and second grade. And we just did this analysis, and even I was surprised by the numbers. Um, 24% of our kids are either homeless or living in someone else's housing that's wow. considered transitional housing. That's one out of four kids in the, the schools that we target. And how is that impacting their education, their ability to learn? That Well, there's there's kind of two sides of it. I think, one, it can affect their, um, you know, it affects the, it can affect the um, kids' emotional readiness to, you know, just their ability to pay attention. Um, you know, you have to have, you know, you can imagine. But, but the other component, too, is um, kids getting to school. And so this issue of um, chronic absenteeism is a real challenge in, in schools. And fortunately, it's getting much more attention. You know, there's been a lot of emphasis in the last, few, in the, you know, the last few years on testing. And in the last year or two, there's been a sense that we need to look at how we hold schools accountable and what we hold them accountable to. And there's increasingly an understanding that we have to look at this chronic absenteeism as a key element that we can, because some schools are, are effective at reducing that and, and some are less effective. 
Um, so, so the they, schools that are effective, what are they doing? There's, it's it's about the connection between school and home. Now, to be fair, it's not a, you know this is not a level playing field. Some schools are situated in you know an area where it's a lot of transitional housing and or kids even who are coming from homeless shelters from far away or you know other issues. So different schools are facing very different challenges. But where schools move the needle on that, it is about time spent really connecting with families and getting, you know, and, and following up and making sure that kids are coming to school. And, you know, it's, can every, it can be things from teachers contacting families. There's time in the day where teachers can do that. But it, it, this is not an individual teacher role. This is a systematic approach that, that schools have to put in place. And, and there are some interesting programs out there that really focus on that. I mean, where, where we're focused is really on the teachers and the teacher quality around content instruction. So teaching reading, teaching mathematics, teaching effective writing in the middle school. But again, in K-1-2, kindergarten first, like we like to say that, um, and there's really great research around this, if a child has three years of effective instruction, the research shows it has a permanent impact on their earning potential, on their likelihood to graduate. It's just, just like huge. Now, it's magnified if those first of those three really effective years of instruction are in the earlier years of your life. So if you knock it out of the park in kindergarten, first and second grade, you really have done a great job. Challenge to that is that, you know, those are the grades where there is no high stakes testing. And I'm very glad for that. Mm -hmm. But there is a challenge. You know, you imagine you're a principal and, you know, you're in in a high needs urban school. People are not knocking your door down to teach in that school like they may be in other places. You know, it's very difficult sometimes to get a job in Long Island teaching, but it, you know, we, we have vacancies, quite a few of them in, you know, schools in the Bronx with the most gorgeous children you could ever meet. You know, and I, I just wish I could get them in there and say, meet the kids. They're hmm. so beautiful. Come teach in the city. You will, you know, it's, it's a great experience. Um, but in when you have that, you have high, you have a lot of new teachers and and people who are coming, you know, to learn essentially on the kids or some of the, the higher needs. So, how th- big is the turnover rate in these high need schools? It, that honestly varies, and to be fair, I don't actually have I don't have wonderful data on the turnover rate. It's not a, a, a metric that I think is reliably reported um, by the system right now. I wish it was. There's been a lot of attacking of teachers and teaching for some of the problems in education. You know, some of some of these things can, you know, maybe there are elements of this which are fair. There's reforms that need to be need to happen. But it is not the individual teacher that's going to fix the system. There are systematic changes that have to be put into place. And, um, you know, one of that is just the idea that, you know, we have a nation where, uh, if you want to learn to teach, uh, you're probably learning to do that on a child who's coming from a poor community because it's pretty hard to walk in straight out of ed school in a well-heeled suburb or, you know, it just doesn't happen. And so, you know, that's that's part of our challenge. And I have to say that, you know, those are also incredible people to work with. They're first-year teaching. And if you set up a school with systems and structures that are really clear uh, so that that teacher walks in into sort of a well-oiled machine, like this is how we teach reading. Here's what you – this is what we do. Here's how you uh, how you figure out what level the kids are at. Here's what you do when they're at this level. Here's what you do at this level. This is how you learn from your co-teacher. This is how you look at data. If all of those things are in place, that we've seen these new teachers just thrive and want to stay and have said that they felt like they got a better education. Um, Think about it as a residency 
in these schools that we're partnering with than they ever could have gotten in another place. So outside of your program, fair to say most teachers aren't being adequately prepared to handle the challenges of working in these high-need schools? I think um, that there are few ed schools that are specifically set up to develop teachers in the particular challenges of urban schools, some of the stressors. You know, I know that there are specialized programs out there, and you know, some schools focus on this more than others. But just the, teach- the teaching of reading, which is so critical, most teachers come out of education school not having had the clinical practice of teaching reading for long enough so that they can hit the ground running. So, you know, imagine you maybe you did a few, you know, a month or two in sitting in someone's classroom watching them teach reading. You now have 30 children, one teacher, 30 children coming at you from all different levels. And it's your job in that first grade to make sure that they leave reading. And if you don't, the stakes are actually incredibly high. I always think it's kind of interesting how high stakes that that first grade year is and, you know, the resources we're putting towards it are sort of surprising. We're not thinking long-term and sort of smart in terms of how we allocate to that critical first grade year, you know. What are those stakes? Well, um, if a child, uh, the research is clear, if a child is not reading uh, on grade level by grade three, they are six times more likely to drop out of high school. That's a really staggering number. Um, And, you know, from there that leads to, and that's a really high cost to society. So like, making sure kids can read by the end of second and third grade is just worth the money. I mean, it is worth the money because you're going to pay 10 times over if you if you, if you you miss the mark on that. So. so let's talk about the programs that you have in place, that Teaching Matters has sure. in place to help teachers improve reading skills. So we have a particular initiative um, that is, uh, it's called Early Reading Matters, and it is an approach where we partner with the entire school around how they systematically approach the re- reading instruction for kindergarten, first, second grade. Um, and what we do is... We, have, we, we specifically developed a teachers on sets. I won't get into too much of the minutiae around this, but really specific uh, uh, skills around teaching of reading. Um, things that like putting kids into small groups, knowing what level they're at, grouping them, and then targeting the instruction to their reading. That's something we have to really sort of help teachers understand. The other thing that we do is we work with the leadership so that they can see and identify what good instruction looks like. So that you, when you're, when you're, it's kind of like when your principal knows what to look for, what you're in your AP knows what to look for, then they can either support you or get you the help you need, you know, or partner partner you up correctly. But you know, it's it's not. I think sometimes people are surprised, but you know, you could become a principal of a school because you were, you know, a really amazing math teacher. You could become a principal of a school because you're just great at operations. There's, you know, not every principal of an elementary school has excellence in reading instruction, but it is critical that elementary schools hit this gap of closing the reading gap by by two. So you have to have strong leadership that can do that. The last thing we do is we really systematically help schools look at data and and teachers to understand what kids know and don't know, and not the kind of test data where it's, you know, too much information too late, frankly, from from the state test. It's last week. This is the thing that we needed to master, and um, do they have it? And and so now we can move on. It's the data that teachers really value, and it's the kind of thing where it'll change their instruction, you know, and they, they, they make decisions around it. So then this is a top-down program. You're starting at the principal, working your way down, making sure that it's then in the classroom. I would say it's top-down, bottom-up, and let me explain why. So um, we, we focus on the development of the principal, but also a sets of we identify in that first year the teachers that we believe 
will be the turnkey. So we don't want to be there forever. This is a three-year model. We work with the school for three years. First year, we're developing the teachers, and we're working with the teachers that we see as having the potential to coach and support others. There's two reasons for that. One, we want to sustain the learning, and we know that there'll be turnover in the school. And so developing a cohort of people can continue to to turn turnkey that. The other thing is you want to extend the life of the time teachers stay in in schools. And so what we find, you know, with these millennials, and I, I won't reveal my age, but I'm not one, um, they want responsibility early and fast. And they're, they rise to the challenge. And I think it's really exciting. So if they can see a pathway where they learn, they master, and now they get to teach others, that keeps them in the profession and in high-need schools longer. And so that's part of our mission. So you're creating a mentorship program. Absolutely. What about math skills? So the math the math work that we've been doing has primarily been in the middle years. We have actually identified uh, and talked about the need for early an early math model. Um, one of the things I don't know if people realize, but the Common Core, which I know we're not using the Common Core in New York, but let's just, you know, it's Common Core with some modifications. Common Core has really um, elevated the kind of thinking skills that kids have to be able to do in, in first and second grade around mathematics. And you could make a case that um, teachers, starting in third grade, need to start to departmentalize a little bit, so that you know if it's it's a skill now to teach mathematics in a way that it you know when we taught you know how to add two plus two it's fine, but what kids have to be able to do mathematically now takes increasing amounts of specialization. So um, what I would say is that there is a big need for um, teachers to go into elementary who love mathematics. And for programs special, special who specialize in that, and to to do some targeted work there, we currently in K one two are really, really, really focused on the reading gap, and and, um, and that's where we're, our efforts are. So, what impact have you been having in New York City schools? So, we've had really exciting data. Um, we have seen in our first and second grade, from the beginning year to the end of the year. Well, we have an assessment which looks at um, kids' reading levels and what level they're reading at. And what we look, we look at ourselves two ways. We look across all the kids, on, on average, how many levels are they moving. And we're finding that our kids are making um, the gains that they should be making in terms of levels. Sometimes they're starting behind, so that's not enough. I mean, some kids have to move seven levels because they're three levels behind. But we're seeing on average kids making the, the movement that we, on average, we, we need them to make. We're also saying how many kids are at the level that they should be at at the beginning of the year and how many are at the end. And we've seen 50% increases in the numbers of kids are at level from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And that's that's the number that we're really, really excited about and, and why we're expanding the program. Um, our intention is to bring this to about 60 schools in the next four years. We're currently in 30. Are you also outside of New York City and other places in the country? So we have the the work we do around developing teachers to lead other teachers in learning is uh, we just we're now working with the, the State Department of Tennessee and we're we're working around online um, development of teachers on how to do this. And we did this with New York City, some really nice work around developing teacher competencies to lead and coach other teachers. Um, and and that program is now being scaled to the state of Tennessee. They're, they've, they're piloting it with uh, seven districts. What are you hearing from the teachers themselves who've gone through this program in terms of their confidence and their success stories? Yeah. Um, honestly, I wish you could talk to some of them. They, It is my favorite thing in the world to take people uh, to come see the schools, meet the kids, and talk to the teachers. And we do that We do that multiple times a year. If any of your listeners are interested in getting involved, they should call us. Um, 
But what I hear from teachers, and especially first and second year teachers, is the roadmap that, that this has offered them. It is not uh, a script. This is not something where we're telling teachers exactly what to do. We're teaching them how to think, but we're giving them real structures around how to make decisions. And that's what they say. They say that they have learned to teach reading uh, because of this program and that they did not know how to do it before they came into this program. The bottom line, they came out of ed school, they didn't know how to do it, and now they, they now they do. How surprised are they to realize that they didn't know how to teach reading until now? Well, you know, talk to any teacher, and that first year is just, you know, a hell of a shock. There's a whole bunch of surprises your first year uh, of what you don't actually know when you go into a classroom. So I think they're surprised, but I think there's a lot of surprises, honestly. Um, I think there's also, um, amongst all teachers, this sense of... Um, it's when you start to see the kids having success. I mean, that's how we get, you know, there's a lot of programs that go into schools and tell teachers what to do. And I'm not a fan of that. I actually, I think the thing that's really critical to this model is that we are, we've set it up so that teachers are learning from other teachers. They're learning how to recognize good strategies. They're learning who's doing it the best from the data. And then they're watching and learning from each other. And that's, essential. So when we talk about a program, you know, this is not a script, it's not a book. It is a set of practices that teachers can tell when they're good, you know, when they're strong at them and when they need to improve in them and how to help each other. Um, And that's teachers, I think one of the, so I was a teacher and uh, I had to teach reading and I can tell you I did not know what I was doing whatsoever and there was no program. Where did you teach? I taught in Baltimore City um, and I had been a I came out of the private sector and went into teaching, and um, I just didn't have the preparation I needed for it and um, was always – I think that what what people don't understand about teachers is that I find them to be incredibly hard on themselves. And in you're in an urban classroom, even if you're excellent, there is always a student or two that you're up at night – feeling that you've let down because you know, you just know, you know that, that there's a child that you're not able to reach or that, you know, you, or you're questioning or something's not working. And so, you know, teachers feel very alone and feel a lot of responsibility for challenge, issues and challenges that, you know, that are really all our responsibility as far as I'm concerned and the weight of it falls on them. For me, the, the, the key to um, teachers is to provide them to have for them to be in a situation where they really can get support from each other and that that is valued across the school and it's systemic it's not an accident teachers don't just work together because they get along this is how we operate and i have to tell you the private sector was not like an option to be on a project and have project meetings and identify problems and learn how to solve them it's just the norm in the private sector and that's got to be the norm in our schools but, you know, you know your teacher. She was mm-hmm. in front of the classroom most of the time. Did you ever see her in these, you know, did you ever see the structure so that teachers could really analyze the work or diagnose, like, what does a child need? Realize that they don't know and have other people who can come help them. That's mm-hmm. what we have to do to change our schools so that they look like modern organizations. What are some examples of specific student success stories? So we had this one student who... Um, she was in second grade and she had at that point developed a whole sense of herself as someone who was a non-reader and was I mean she and she had difficulty going from left to right in a book she hadn't made true connections to print and um, one of the strategies that that is and again so for us we look at given that child's behaviors where is she so this child was what we call pre-a Okay, so for, that's actually pre-kindergarten. And so based on that, there's a set of strategies for pre-A. And so what the teacher actually did was they constructed a book 
like a, a book where it was uh, on something that she understood, keywords she knew, and she wrote this book. And from that, then she could read this book. And then she understood concepts of print and reading from left to right. And um, she moved in one month close to three levels. But more importantly, she, you know, she suddenly was like, I'm a reader. Like that was a really important shift that a child can say, I'm a reader and develop this kind of confidence. And that happens in education. Like you'll have these moments where kids suddenly make big jumps. And it's a lot about their self-confidence and their sense of themselves as um, successful and that they can do it. And so that's just one, that's just one example. I'm sure you have many, many many more. How do you help teachers to stay in communication with parents? You talked earlier about how important that is, but what do you do to help improve the teacher-parent relationship? So one of the things that we do by helping teachers understand, okay, if a child is um, level A or level B, level C, we have the sets to make things clear. We have these statements like at a, at a level B, there's certain things that I can do. So, and the child can understand them, the teacher can understand them, and the parents can understand them. So one thing we we do is we 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 demystify reading instructions so that it can be plain language so that that everybody can have a your child's at a level C and these are some of the things that they that your child will be able to do when you know by the time she moves to a level D and um, that's what we mean about having a roadmap um, to help people uh, kind of know what to do next and you don't want the child to know what what am I, what am I I'm, I'm reading this book what am I going to be able to do at the end of this book you talked about the role of principals do you think that principals have enough control? of their schools to implement the kind of change that's needed to go forward? Uh, yes. I think that um, – so I think there are always challenges. Um, it, in my experience, principals who uh, support their teachers and uh, have – I don't know if the word is control, but they have the support that they need to make change. And the best principals are really effective at positioning teachers to lead in the instruction. And if they do that really well, then yes, they have all the control, quote, support that they need. And part of it is because they're giving some of that control away, but not randomly. You know, it's not just I'm letting you make these decisions. We have a set of systems and structures that we all agree to. And now I'm identifying the people who are best situated to lead that. And so, yes, I I have seen um, in the same system with the same constraints I've seen some principals be extraordinarily successful in creating a culture that just really can be transformative. And for me, the ticket is, do you have this kind of cohort of teachers that are leading their peers or facilitating their peers in this work? And that's because they may have more experience. They may have, you know, um, demonstrated some know-how. And you take advantage of that. The minute you find someone that can do anything, you position them to lead on that. And, you know, that's what good principals do. How do you set up accountability? How do you lean on those teachers without overburdening them? One of the things that I think is really powerful about collaborative groups, so let's say I have the second grade team. And so what we do is we the teachers come together and they look at all their students. And there's this sense of it's not your child and my child, it's our kids. So that's a shift. Once we get Once teachers go from it's my classroom to it's our classrooms, this is our data, these are our kids that are off level and these are our kids which are meeting level. So if I'm a teacher and we're all teaching similar, but you're having more success than I am, the data is telling us, like, we're seeing which kids are moving and which aren't. So is that a stick situation? Like, you need to work harder. Or is that a situation where the teacher's like, wait, what are you doing? And 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 you're setting it up so that that teacher can learn from the teacher that's having more success. I think that teachers actually are the strongest accountability 
uh, in any building, especially when there's transparency about what's working and what's not working. And what's really key is that it's not a gotcha. It's so like if you have doctors and they're looking at, ki- a doc- I mean, think about it from a patient perspective. Doctors come together, they're looking at how the patient's doing, and they're learning from each other. It's not a sense of like, your patient died, you're awful. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a sense of like, let's diagnose what the problem is, and then let's solve it together. And this is how we learn. And when you see schools make that shift, you don't need the stick anymore. Because as I said, there's nothing that keeps a a teacher up at night than knowing this little child in front of them. And if if you have a way of doing something that I could be doing, in my experience, majority of teachers will jump at that, you know, And, and they're the ones that know what they need what do I need to know? And then, you know, how can I, can I learn that? If you've got good data systems, they can start to make those decisions themselves. Have you been tracking the retention rate in the schools you've been working with? That is, um, that's a very good question. And what we have been doing is surveying teachers about their intentions for retention. We're starting now specifically to um, really track who's staying. And, and it's a challenge, though, because, you know, teachers sometimes move from one school to a nearby school. Sometimes they're moving grades. And we honestly don't have access to that data. If I could, that would be one thing I would love is, is better access to the system-wide data so we could track that across. But what we have said to teach, we've, we've gotten a lot of feedback from teachers that have said that this work has extended their time in the classroom, um, especially some of the teacher leadership work when they can see that, you know, once I, I'm doing the work in my classroom, but I also see a future in working with teachers across classrooms. That that keeps people in the profession for longer. What are we seeing in terms of people going into the profession as a whole? Well, nationally, we're seeing a decline. And that's terrible. I mean, Now, what do you think that is because, largely? The, the issue? Well, there's um, there's increasing... I mean, there's, there's plenty of data that... You know, there's a sense in America we spend a lot of money on schools and we spend more than other countries. But if you actually look at professions... Um, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a lawyer, whether whether uh, I was a management consultant, um, and then the teaching profession, the the professions are paid significantly less, as you know. But so we pay relatively less than other countries compared to their professionalized. Um, and and I have to tell you, I I mean. I was young and foolish, but I thought working at Pricewaterhouse, being a management consultant, working you know twenty hour days, going in to teach second grade, I really did think that I was going to go in there and just you know be God's gift to education. And I tell I tell you, I was pretty awful my first year. I was um, blown away by how difficult it was and how hard it was to be really good. It was such a learning curve, and that's the problem. Too many people don't realize that this is a very complex teaching reading is as hard as learning rocket science. Reading is really complicated. I mean, we don't even know half of what we need to know about the brain to understand why kids have some of the struggles they are. So this is really complex stuff. And it's just not, you know, we're, until we pay, to answer your question, mm-hmm. how do we get them in? This is, I think there's a real pay issue. There really is. Other thing is, is there's a, there's a status issue. And it's because the message we sent to our younger uh, people who go into the education, and it's because we don't pay, it's because the conditions are in schools are not what they need to be, is that this is not um, a high-status profession. And it is. I mean, you you change lives. I can think of the kids where I made this huge difference in there. I know. that I had. I was fortunate I had my kids for, I looped, which is where you ha- keep your kids for multiple years. And so, you know, I was it for mathematics for some of these kids for multiple years. And those kids do math. I mean, when they left me, they knew math. And like, I know that. I know there's a group of kids going around the world who are, you know, at least they know how to do tip. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what's your biggest piece of advice to someone entering the profession right now? I think that this is a really great profession and that there's an increasing recognition of how critical it is to our national economy and to our future. And so I do think that this is a good time. I also think that if you are a young person of color, please take a second look at this profession because you're saving lives in this profession. There's research now to show that if a young child who is of color has one teacher of color, it has a huge effect on so many other aspects. And I think it's because it's, you know, it's t- this child is saying, like, I, I can be a teacher, right? That, that's, I'm seeing this model. So you, you have this, it's one of the few professions where I think you can really, truly change lives. And what I've seen, and I've been in this work for 20 years, in the last five, there's been a much more focus on teachers, teaching, elevating the profession. And I think that's only going to continue. And as long as we get great people in the profession, that will only continue to. Do you think that teaching matters could be a national model? I think that um, the work that we're doing around teacher leadership, yes, we, and we're already, you know, working nationally, um, and it could spread further. And um, yes, and I think that this work around early reading could absolutely scale. Is there anything particularly unique about New York City compared to other areas with high needs schools? One of the things that's um, unique about New York is a how large it is, and frankly. Um, the talent. Uh, And I I, I say that I've had a lot of friends who have led schools and then have gone to, let's just say, areas which are a little, uh, maybe the the students that they're teaching don't have as many challenges. And they talk all the time about how teachers that learn to teach in New York are some of the most phenomenal teachers out there. Lynette, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Lynette Westafiro is the executive director of Teaching Matters. More info at teachingmatters.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. My name is George Bodarki. Thank you so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.